Hey friends, it's been a minute, hasn't it? The last real full-length episode of True Crime came out over a year ago now, which is wild to believe. So a lot of you might be wondering where we've been. The answer to that is complicated, but also simple. Making new episodes takes a lot of time, and it takes even more time when both me and my team have full-time jobs outside of the podcast. I promise, though, I promise, new episodes are coming. We've been working on them as fast as we possibly can, and I can't tell you exactly what I have up my sleeve, but trust me, it'll be worth the wait. We have some amazing things in store. And in the meantime, I'm thrilled to share with you a really special interview with a fellow true crime podcast creator whom I deeply admire, Sarah Turney. While I'm sure many of you are familiar with Sarah, in case you aren't, Sarah entered the true crime space as an advocate for her missing sister, Alyssa Turney. Alyssa went missing in 2001 at just 17 years old. Sarah exhausted all traditional legal avenues and used social media, organized several campaigns demanding justice for her sister. And after years of fighting for answers, she created the Voices for Justice podcast, which featured Alyssa's story in 2019. In August of 2020, an arrest was finally made in the case and Sarah's efforts were recognized by the Maricopa County Attorney. Since the arrest, Sarah has shifted her focus to advocating for other cases in need of justice. I'm so thrilled for you to hear my conversation with Sarah. She's an incredible human with so many important insights to share. So without further ado, here's the interview. to have you on the Patreon today and to kind of learn more about you and your story. But I guess before we kind of get into all of that, I'd love for you to just kind of introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little about yourself and your work and Voices for Justice. Oh, sure. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Sarah Turney. I host a podcast called Voices for Justice. I also host a second podcast called Disappearances. But yeah, I started in true crime because I have a missing sister and I was trying to get justice for her. And now I am in this industry to help other families. So I'm extremely grateful to be here. And I just want to make true crime a better place for people like me and all those families out there. I love that about like the work that you do, just how mission-driven you are and how much you care about families and really making sure that true crime is as ethical as it can be. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with you and your TikTok and all your awesome work, but can you talk a little bit more at your comfort level about like, you know, how you started Voices for Justice, what specifically led you to it and how that initial podcast has grown and changed since you originally started it? Yeah, I I started Voices for Justice back in, my goodness, 2019. And, you know, it came to a certain point in my sister's case where the police said, we can't help you. You need to get some media coverage. So that's exactly what I did. You know, I tried all the major media outlets who wanted nothing to do with my sister's case. I couldn't get a response back. And then I started uh, with independent creators. I went to YouTube. I went to podcasts. And I basically begged them to cover my sister's case. And then after I had done, my goodness, something like 50 podcasts or something insane, I had done so many podcasts and so many YouTube channels. You know, I got the feedback constantly from my creator friends of like, why don't you just start your own podcast? Like at this point, 
you've done all these things, you know, they tell me I'm a good speaker. Uh, I hate to say that about myself, you know what I mean? But just start your own podcast. And I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, what do I have to lose at this point? So I I bought a hundred dollar microphone and I used what I call the world's worst laptop. It was so, somebody, I was recording once and somebody asked if there was a motorcycle nearby. And I was like, that's my laptop. <laughs> like, it, was, it was so bad. But I started with this $100 microphone and the world's worst laptop in my closet, and it worked out. I thought nobody was going to listen, and I got super lucky because Voices for Justice hit new and noteworthy like right away. I don't know how that happened. I still don't know how that happens, but I, I got real lucky, and people just started listening, you know, and then... I wasn't done telling my sister's story despite there being like 20 plus episodes. It's like the longest long form podcast ever, but I wasn't done. And then um, an arrest happened. You know, there was an arrest made in the case and I stopped covering her case. But by this point, I'd built up such a platform with the podcast. I had a million followers on TikTok. I was like, there's no way I'm just going to stop and not use my platform for other people. So that's exactly what I did. I started covering other cases in need of justice. And so did you start with TikTok first or did you start with the podcast first and then that led to the TikTok? Where did you kind of begin? Yeah, the podcast was first. I think I started with all other social media first, you know, your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter. Didn't get a ton of traction there. It was really, really hard to build those platforms. Started the podcast and then during quarantine, like the billion of other people that, uh, you know, downloaded TikTok, I did too. And I was like, hey, this is a cool platform. I don't see a lot of people doing true crime on here. Why don't I just give it a shot? And I made that first video and I was so mortified. I was like, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever done in my entire life. But then it went viral and I was like, it's working. I don't, you know, I, I'll look like an idiot on TikTok for my sister. I've done everything else. Why not? I got super lucky. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's awesome that you, you know, you just kept going and used your platform, you know, to tell other folks stories afterwards. I think that's like just really incredible. What was your relationship like to true crime media before all this happened? I mean, like before you started creating your own true crime content, you know, had a podcast and TikTok. I'm curious about that just because too, like, you know, you, what you're saying is really interesting. Like you weren't feeling like the police were getting traction with your sister's case. So you went to true crime media and you were featured on all these different shows and things like that. Like, how did you feel about these shows that were covering your case, like your sister's case? Were you just like grateful that you had a platform to tell your sister's story or was it kind of hard knowing that like true crime media can sometimes be, you know, problematic or have issues with like the ethics of things? So I was eternally grateful to be exploited left and right. I was grateful to be used left and right. I was grateful for everything. I would go into interviews telling people, I don't care if you say I killed my sister, just talk about her. I put myself out there to be exploited and to be used, and that's what happened. But at the time, I didn't see that. I just saw it as, I'm so grateful to be here, and I'm so grateful that you are talking about my sister in any capacity, that I was happy to take what I would consider kind of a form of abuse at this point, you know, now that I can reflect back. And it wasn't until after the arrest that this cloud kind of lifted, and I was like, wow, these people could have been so much better to me. And not everyone. There, there were so many that were lovely and, and wonderful and I would work with it again in a heartbeat. But there were there were a lot of rough times, you know what I mean? There were a lot of really what I would consider inappropriate questions, inappropriate asks. I've been asked to cry. Some pretty horrendous stuff, but I didn't realize that until after the arrest and that pressure was off because when I was fighting to get that arrest, I was willing to do anything. And I realized that so many other families out there are exactly the same. We're willing to be exploited. We're willing to be abused because it's not about us. It's about our family member. No, that totally makes sense. 
Was true crime something that you consumed much just like as somebody who like was interested in the genre or was your sister's, you know, story and case kind of what introduced you to it? My sister's case is what introduced me to it. I never consumed true crime content. Like I was aware of the popular shows, but they weren't for me. I never watched 2020 or Dateline or Unsolved Mysteries or America's Most Wanted. I never watched that kind of stuff. So I really had to throw myself into this industry and I tried to learn as much about it as I could because I felt it was necessary. But yeah, no, never a consumer of true crime content. I still really am not. So really, you came in with this focus, like kind of single-mindedly with this mission that you had, and then it turned into what it is now. What are your like thoughts on the genre as a whole now, as you know, now that you've had the experience of kind of seeing on the other side of things and you're like, wow, okay, I was being exploited in all these different ways, but it also did, you know, help in some ways in getting your sister's story out there. Like, do you kind of still feel both ways about it? How have you kind of reconciled some of those feelings? Sure. You know, I think what all this has taught me is that true crime can be and needs to be better. There's so much opportunity in true crime to truly help people. And it can go so far beyond just entertainment value. If creators just focused on some different things, if they were willing to maybe make some more sacrifices, give back a little bit more, I think true crime can be so much more. I see so much potential there. Like, yes, it it is a scary industry for families to be in. And I think it will always be that way because you just can't guess creators' intentions like you want to. But in the end, I have so much hope for true crime. And especially as we're seeing this shift, you know, when I started talking about ethics and true crime back in 2019 or whatever, it was kind of unheard of. Like I was laughed at, you know, it was very much so I was told to shut up and be grateful, kind of like what the police told me. I, I got the same type of gaslighting from the police and the true crime community. It was very similar. But now you see a shift and that's what's really exciting me. So how do you go about creating voices for justice then, like in a way that you feel like is, you know, making sure that people are well taken care of, that these stories are told in an ethical way? Like, what is your episode creation process like? Sure. You know, so I I can say that it is kind of custom per case, and I think it has to be. I don't think you can take one model and fit it to every family, to every case. There are some cases out there, you know, take Harmony Montgomery, for example. I did a two-part series on her, and I didn't feel it was appropriate to bring the family in. There are certain cases where when the family could possibly be involved, it's a scarier area. But then you see other cases where the family, they are the advocates. So, of course, I try to reach out to them and talk to them. So it just depends on the case. I try to do what's best for the victim overall because they're at the center of the story. And that's because I think back to my own experience, you know, what would have happened if I didn't fight for my sister? If nobody said yes to a podcast doing an episode on her or ABC 2020 or whatever it was, that content wouldn't have been made and that's not my sister's fault. So I I always think about the victim. If the family doesn't necessarily want to be involved or possibly could be involved in the, in the case in a nefarious way, that doesn't mean I won't pick the case. You know what I mean? Long story short, it depends on the case. But I I try to think back to my own experiences. It's like when you have a bad boss and you're like, man, I'm never going to schedule people that way. I'm never going to talk to people that way. I took all those lessons from true crime and I try to apply it to my families. So it just depends. But yeah, I mean, I when I do interview a family, I always tell them, what do you want to make sure absolutely makes it into this episode? What is your call to action? And I make sure that they know that even days, months, years, moments after we do this interview, if they say, please pull that, I don't want to talk about that, you know, please edit this out, I I do that. It's no questions asked. So I try to make it 
basically as safe of an environment as possible. And I also try to make sure that they know that I'm there for them long after the episode. You know, I, I do things like send microphones to families, you know, if they're considering starting their own podcast. I'll always share case files with them. It's just about being a kind person and then making sure that they know it's not just content for me. Like I'm genuinely here to help them. Do you find that a lot of the cases you cover are ones that you kind of happen across that stick with you for some reason? Or do you have a lot of families that are reaching out for you, similar to how you reached out to other folks kind of asking you to cover their family member's story? I have so many families reaching out to me. And I think that's one of the hardest parts is that I never thought I would get to a point where I can't get to all these families and it breaks my heart. But I can't just focus on cases that have a family advocate because, again, I think about my sister. You know what I mean? I think about cases who, you know, these kids especially, you know, missing adults, of course, are very important. And I do some murder cases, but it is mostly missing. But when there's a kid out there that's missing and there's nobody advocating for them publicly, like, I have to pick up those cases too. I can't just rely on family members reaching out to me or else I'm not going to I'm not going to reach the entire population I wish to. So it's it's hard. And yeah, I have a a case list that I think is over 600 long right now. It, I get so many requests and it it breaks my heart that I can't get to them all. Mm-hmm. Do you form like these relationships with these family members like ongoing where you feel like, you know, you've made friends with folks who've been through these similar experiences and stuff through like working on their family members cases and telling their stories? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's not a requirement. They don't have to check in with me and be my friend. They want to do an episode and move on. I get it. I did so many shows that people will come up to me and be like, hey, I covered your sister's case. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't remember you. Like it, it all becomes a blur. So I I don't take it personally. But yeah, there, there have been so many families that we've stayed connected. They'll call me. They'll text me. You know, I know about updates and cases that have never been told before. And that's because they trust me and they know it's not going to go anywhere. You know, they come to me genuinely for advice and I would never take that lightly. You know, that's a huge responsibility. But yeah, I'm friends with a lot of them now. And has your process since, I mean, you've been doing this since 2019. So it's been a few years now. Has your process like changed a lot in terms of how you go about creating the episodes and, and all of that? Absolutely. You know, I think I definitely take more care with other cases than I did with my sisters, if that makes sense. It might sound a little backwards, but, you know, I felt so much ownership over my sister's case. And obviously I I knew so much about it from the inside and I had so many documents that it's, it was like, I'm doing it the way I want to do it. And if other people don't like it too bad, you know, with other people's cases, obviously I can't do that. So it's changed quite a bit. You know, in the beginning, obviously it was it was more difficult for me. I didn't really have a, a strict format. I was just genuinely trying to help. And over, you know, the two years or so that I've been covering other cases, I've definitely gotten, you know, a, a format down pretty pat, you know, but the biggest thing always is a call to action. That has always been like my one thing is why are we telling these stories? If you can listen to this story for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, three parts over multiple hours, then you can do one thing to help these cases. So that's always been the main focus. But yeah, I think hopefully I've gotten a little bit better over the years. I wanted to talk about TikTok a little bit because that's how I first came across you. I came across you in 2020. And I think my friend had texted asking if I'd heard of you. And like, I think my podcast was an idea. Like it was like maybe the very beginnings of an idea or it it was possible it was actually before that. And, you know, I'm so impressed with what you've done, especially on that platform, of course, with the podcast, but 
it's hard to grow a platform and to really keep people engaged and to do, you know, really powerful things with, with social media, which I think you do. How has your relationship to the app kind of changed over the years? And like, I know you mentioned you kind of just made a video and it took off, but if you could describe a little bit about like what that experience was like, were you like hesitant at all? Or you were just like, this is working. I'm going to keep going. Was it, were you kind of like shocked that it went viral so quickly? Just love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, yeah, I was absolutely shocked. I liked the podcast. I thought I'd put it out into the world and no one would listen, but they did. TikTok supported me in a way that no other platform, no other community ever had. And it's insane. Like, I love my TikTok people so much because I come from a unique situation, right? You know, with my sister's case, my family didn't want to help. They weren't there for me in any capacity. So, although I'd built up, you know, some following, on other platforms, nothing was quite like TikTok. The way that they advocated for me um, and advocated for my sister and shared these videos was unreal. I mean, I think the top video had something like 20 million views, just insane numbers. I had people like Mia Khalifa trying to advocate for my sister. I had Rosie O'Donnell follows me now, just like, uh, you know, I had more followers than like Gwen Stefani at one point. But the biggest thing is these people just supported me so, and they still do. Like TikTok is my safe place. It's my happy place. And I mean, they wanted to see me succeed, I think, than any other platform I'd ever experienced before. Like those people were there for me when nobody else was. And I will never take that lightly. I know people talk about parasocial relationships all the time, you know, like these creators having these fake relationships with people online. But I feel a genuine connection to these people. You know, most of my people, I get so many messages and so many kind words of support, but especially TikTok, like those are my people. And when I go live, I go live for no reason. And we just talk about life and I just tell them I love them and I love them and I feel so supported by them. But yeah, I mean, TikTok is a whole different animal and it's so different today than when I first started. It's so much harder to go viral. Even my videos, you know, with a million followers, I'll see 10,000, you know, views sometimes. And I'm like, that's less than like 1% of my audience or whatever. It's a different beast now. But it's funny, if you look at these platforms, right, where are these families going viral? It's not Instagram, it's not Twitter, it's not Facebook, it's TikTok. If you look up some of the, you know, the families of these cases, they generally have more followers than most creators do. It's unreal. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what you've described about how folks were really so supportive of you. I mean, that's amazing, right? Like that can be a lot of the fuel to kind of keep you going, especially with podcasting. I feel like it's such a, it's a little bit of an echo chamber, right? You put things out there and like, you might hear things back on social media, but not in the same like real time way that you might be able to on TikTok where you're getting comments in or DMs and things like that. So obviously that's like a really positive side. How have you dealt with some of the more negative aspects of like maybe negative commenters or people who kind of don't understand or like maybe like put you down on the app? How is that something or how do you navigate that? Sure. I mean, I think at first, you know, it's hard when you go from zero followers to a million really quickly. That means you get a lot of, you know, mean people sometimes. It happens. And it's not easy to navigate at first. You know, I would take it personally. I'd get really sad. I would cry. But then I realized that I can use these things as learning moments. And, you know, I would say, like, don't attack this person because that will happen on TikTok when you respond to a comment uh, because, you know, their username shows up right there. 
but I would use it as a learning example and say, hey, like this is what families have to deal with. It's not okay. And these are the reasons why. So I always try to turn these negative moments in my life into either learning moments or something positive because I think we always have something to learn and it doesn't have to be about go attack that person and they're terrible. It's, hey, this is a common misconception. So like, for example, after the arrest happened and I stopped talking about my sister's case, I had someone that was like, you owe us updates. We did this for you. Like, you have to tell us what's going on. And so I'm like, hey, like the entitlement is strong here. You know what I mean? I would love to tell you guys updates. I would because I love and respect you and I understand what you did for me and I will never take that lightly. But, you know, I have to do what's best for the case and comments like this aren't helpful. And it's it's stuff like that. I think that there's a lot of learning opportunity on TikTok. And you don't necessarily have to cancel people or be mean. You can, you can do it in a way that, you know, provokes thought about this industry. And that's always my goal. So you recently spoke on a panel at CrimeCon in Las Vegas, which I attended CrimeCon. It was my first time going with my co-producer, Olivia. And it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I think when I first heard about the idea of CrimeCon, this idea of like a crime convention, I was like, okay, that's a little, you know, odd. It was similar to how I felt about the true crime genre in general before I kind of started creating it. And, but I was like, I really want to, you know, let's check it out. Let's see what it's about. And I think there were some really amazing highlights, some great, you know, folks like you, other family members, There was a really great talk we got to see from somebody who is formerly incarcerated, just like really some really awesome experiences. And then there were some things that were like less awesome or things that, you know, get into that gray area of of what's ethical and what's not and how much of this is just for entertainment versus like positive change. So I'm really curious about like your thoughts, your experience, and just like your thoughts on the ethics of crime conventions in general and, and how, you know, folks should think about these things critically. Yeah. You know, to be totally honest, I think it's going to be my last crime con was crime con Las Vegas. I don't see myself going to any more of these festivals or conventions in the future. And I think that's because they don't attract the audience that I think truly wants to see the same change I do. And I'm not saying that for the entire audience, you know, crime con specifically, if you look at the demographics of their audience, they are very much that old school true crime. They are there for Nancy Grace. They're there for Dr. Phil and for Chris Hansen. They're not really there for families like me. And that's not everyone, you know what I mean? But there were some things that happened at that conference that I don't think were acceptable and will make me never support it again. And it it really made me rethink all of these conferences. You know, for example, when podcasters walked in, you were handed this box, this, and I used to do events and marketing, so I, I know how these things work, right? It's somebody paid to put that box in my hand. And when I open this box, there's a hand sanitizer that says something about washing off the blood. There's a candle that says something about covering up the smell of murder. And here I am talking with a woman who her partner's remains were possibly just found. And she was like, how could they hand me this box? Like, what are they doing? And I had the same question. It's really sad because I think there's so much potential there. But as long as they lean into these caricatures of true crime, I I don't see these types of conferences doing much of anything for anyone, but they could. And that's the sad part. So I hope that they improve in the future. Until they do, I don't think it's something I can, in good conscience, be a part of anymore. I can't tell families that it's a good place to advocate because I I just don't believe that anymore. Yeah. 
it was a complicated thing. I mean, I think, like you said, it's it's sad to know that there's a lot of potential there and that there were some really excellent speakers and folks who could really, you know, cut to the core of what I hope that True Crime could be and what it can do for people and what these stories can do for people. But then, you know, you have the gift shop with, you know, slogans on t-shirts that are kind of like, you know, hurtful, you know, and it's kind of weird, I think, to have that in the same place that you have victims and victims, family members walking around and having to consume all of that as well. So it's tough. And I know one of the speakers I heard that did amazing job afterwards for their meet and greet, their meet and greet line was like super short. And then the meet and greet line for, you know, one of these kind of bigger, you know, names and true crime that isn't a family member, doesn't necessarily have that connection is really, really leans into the entertainment side was like out the door, you know? And when I was talking to the speaker, they were kind of just like, we feel like we're a little bit like sheep in the like in the wolf's den or whatever like we don't really feel like we belong here and that's sad because like you would think that those most directly impacted should feel the most included and feel you know really lifted up by the experience so i really appreciate you kind of sharing your your thoughts on that and that hopefully you know conventions like this can grow to be more centered on you know families and victims and how can we change things and make things better so one thing i know and kind of keeping on the train of ethics and true crime, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about like what's problematic, but what is ethics and true crime to you? Like what would it mean for the genre to be at a place that, you know, you see it being in the future? Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because I never want to come in this space and and police it, if you will. I never want to say these people are bad and these people are good because there's so much gray area there. But I think to put it really, really simply, like ethics and true crime is having good intentions you know what I mean? With your content, why are you putting this out? Why are you choosing the cases you you are? Is it to make money? Is it to get downloads? Because there's an easy formula in true crime to do that. You cover popular cases, you say some crazy stuff with speculation, and bam. It's a pretty simple recipe to be successful in true crime. It's harder to make sacrifices, and I think that's what it is. It's harder to give a portion of your income. It's harder to book interviews with families. It's harder to listen to families and pivot your content so that it doesn't cause more harm than good. Again, I think it boils down to intentions. Why are you in this space? Do you want to help? Are you here to get famous? Are you here just to pivot to another genre when that gets popular? So I think it's all about intentions for me. If if you really want to do good and you have just the intention of helping, I think you have a lot better chance of making ethical content. So for the folks that are listening, you know, what is it that you wish that consumers would kind of think about or think critically about as they're consuming true crime? Like, what do you want them to keep in mind? Oh, I love this question because I truly believe that consumers drive this market. They do. It's no doubt. At this point, I encourage consumers to ask questions, questions that are important to them, you know? Again, do you give back? Do you cite your sources? Do you credit the people who work on your podcast? Are you paying those people a fair wage? I think it's all about asking questions that are important to them because the thing is, I see a lot of hate listening in true crime. You know, I am in all the the ethics subreddits and stuff. If you keep listening to a podcast that you believe is bad, they're never going to correct their behavior. 
these creators are not going to pivot their content. They're not going to change what they're doing until they see a dip in listenership. That is the only thing that they'll listen to. So I always encourage consumers to ask questions. And, you know, creators are popular. You know what I mean? They're very busy. I don't expect creators to take time out of their day to answer every single question for consumers. But just look and try to investigate a little bit. And if it feels bad, stop listening because that's all they're going to listen to. You know what I mean? It's it's not going to be you posting on Reddit that you're angry. It's not going to be a bad review. It's it's not going to be any of that. It's going to be when it affects their pocketbook, when they start making less money, when they start going down in the charts. That's when they're going to ask the question, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to change? Until then, whoever's at the top, they're, they're not going to change. You know what I mean? So, you know, you obviously, you started off with Voices for Justice. You had a lot of success on TikTok. You grew this platform and, you know, you've been doing other things since then. You talked at the beginning about how you have another podcast. Can you talk a little bit about that show and kind of how you got into it? Yeah. Disappearances is a Spotify podcast. You can only find it there. But what's really cool is, you know, they came to me and they were like, we want to do ethical true crime. And I'm like, okay, you know, (laughs) you know, it's a little scary getting into a big corporation like that. And I should say it's Parcast with Spotify. It's two different things, but it's important. Parcast, you know, was founded by a man named Max Keller, who cares a lot, who will talk to me personally about these issues. And what's really cool is that they give me the freedom. You know, if I see a script and I'm like, I'm not saying that, or we need to pivot this, or you need to double check this, they take that really seriously. It's really cool because they are trying to focus more on ethical true crime and they want to invest in me to be that person to do that for them. So it's really great. I was terrified at first that I would, you know, be lost and have no say in these things and that I would have to read some outrageous script. But that's not been, you know, the case at all. These people behind these teams care so much and they value my feedback a lot. So it's been absolutely wonderful. It's also been really cool to work with a huge professional team, you know, at Parcast Spotify. They know what they're doing. They're excellent at research. They're excellent at audio, you know, editing. They're excellent at everything they do. And so I've learned so much and it just gives me another platform to hopefully help. So do you see yourself staying in this space? Is this like you where you feel like is your calling? And if so, like kind of what's next for you? Yeah, I do feel like I'm stuck here forever. Um, I feel like I'm drawn to this. I can't leave now. I can't just leave all these families who still feel like they can't speak openly because they're fighting for their cases. You know what I mean? I understand the freedom and privilege I have now that an arrest has been made. I can say what I want without it affecting my sister's case to a certain, obviously beyond talking details about her case, but um, I'm going to be here for a long time. There's a lot of good stuff in the works. After my sister's trial concludes, I definitely want to finish her story just because it has not been finished. But yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. I have a lot of projects in the works that I would love to like spill all the tea on. Like I'm like bursting at the seams to tell everybody, Lots of projects in the works that mostly center around now elevating other voices in this community, voices of family members, voices of survivors, voices of professionals. That's what I'm interested in. I am trying to give true crime back to the people who built it. I should say the people whose backs were used to build crime. It's these families, these victims, these survivors, these experts, as opposed to no offense, but random influencers with a microphone. I'm ready to give true crime back to the people who built it. Well, I'm really excited to see what's next for you and continue listening to your shows. And, you know, I know that you're going to do amazing work. Um, and so I wanted to kind of conclude by asking you some little bit lightning round questions, a little bit faster, fun questions. 
So my first question for you is just a book or a movie that you feel like changed the way that you see the world. Oh, that's a good one. I think the first thing that comes to mind is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's a movie that's always stuck with me. If people aren't familiar, it's about what would happen if you can erase bad memories, if you could just take that out of your brain altogether. And I think what it made me realize was that's not the solution. You know what I mean? It's not the solution to forget about all those things. The solution is to continually build yourself and build off these memories and preserve the good memories you do have, even if things ended badly. So yeah, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Who's someone that you admire? Like just in the world? Yeah, it could be anybody. You could know them. You could not know them, living or dead. I think Keanu Reeves. The way that Keanu Reeves like secretly gives back so much and never talks about it, like he's my hero. Like all the things you hear, all the things you see, like, you know, he's down sharing food with, you know, the unsheltered in his community. And, you know, he's not posting about it. People are just catching him doing these things. So I think he's somebody, yeah, I love him so much. If you look up like how much he gives back and what he does, he is like one of the most excellent people in this world. If anybody out there knows bad things, just don't tell me, just let me live. <laughs> Let her have this. <laughs> Let me have this one. <laughs> yeah, it's people like him that I look up to. These people who just give back because it's the right thing to do. You know, that's, that's what I like to do. So it's a huge inspiration for me. Okay, that's awesome. That's great. Okay, what's a piece of advice that you heard a long time ago? It doesn't actually have to be a long time ago. It could be recent, but just a piece of advice that stuck with you. It's probably, you know, leave things better than you found it. Like for everything, if you borrow something, give it back in a better condition. You know, if you enter somewhere, try to just leave it better. The environment, the podcasting community, true crime. Right now, true crime is on a break from episode releases. So we always have folks kind of asking, oh, what should I listen to next? Obviously, we of course recommend that everyone listen to your podcast, Voice of Justice and Disappearances. But what are some other shows that you really like? Um, it doesn't have to be true crime, although it could be that you'd recommend people check out. Sure. I would say the fall line is absolutely excellent. They take cases that nobody has heard of and they do a ton of primary research and get them into the media and allow other creators who may not be as skilled at research, myself included, may not be as skilled at research to be able to pick up these cases without doing months and months and months of digging through police department records and whatnot. So the fall line is absolutely excellent. I would also recommend podcasts made by families. You know, um, for example, they called her Georgia Lee is excellent. That's about Georgia Leah Moses and her sister Angel, along with a family advocate named Maria. They do this podcast together. Or they did. I believe that they've concluded on episodes about Georgia's story, but that's another excellent one. True Consequences, the same thing, made by Eric Carter Londine. Um, he lost his brother some time ago, and he was inspired to start covering other cases. So yeah, I always like to look for people who I think have really, really good intentions, work hard and give back. Yeah, definitely. I love that. I haven't heard of a couple of those. So we'll definitely check those out. And how can people find you? Where, where are you at? Obviously, we talked a little bit about it, but can you give your handles and all of that? Yeah. So you can find me pretty much everywhere under Sarah E. Turney, because for some reason, Sarah Turney was taken. I don't understand it. Or Voices for Justice, which sometimes sometimes gets abbreviated as like VFJ Pod, because again, worst influencer ever. I just picked a name I thought I thought was self-explanatory. So yeah, Sarah E. Turney, Voices for Justice, VFJ Pod. You can find me in all the places. I'm on all social media except for Snapchat because I never learned it and don't care to. Awesome. Well, I highly recommend everyone check out Sarah Turney on all social media and listen to her podcast. Like you definitely won't regret it if you haven't already. But I really appreciate you taking the time today and being on the Patreon. It was a pleasure to get to chat with you. Yeah, you too. I appreciate you. Thank you. 
And that was my conversation with Sarah Turney. But wait, before you click away, I want to let you know that there are still more ways to get more true crime before the release of our second season. You've definitely heard us pitch this before, but you should join our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive expert interviews and behind-the-scenes content like the interview that I did with Sarah today, and you'll be directly supporting the long-term sustainability of this show. Plus, if you become a Patreon member, you'll get access to another interview with me and Sarah. In that interview, the roles are reversed, and Sarah asks me questions about my background and works true crime, and it was so much fun. I I love chatting with her, and I hope you can check it out. As always, you can find the full list of resources mentioned throughout today's episode, including a link to our Patreon in the description for this episode. Also, make sure to check out Sarah's podcast, Voices for Justice and Disappearances, both of which will be linked in the description. You can find Sarah on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Sarah E. Turney, S-A-R-A-H-E-T-U-R-N-E-Y. All of the resources mentioned during today's episode will be linked in the description.